When we think about race or racialization, we often only think about skin color. This is not without reason, as skin color and other physical features have played a large part in the history of the formation of racial groups, especially in the US. But looks are just one component of this formation, and we sometimes need to step back and look at the others. Today, we'll be examining another method of racialization, religion. We'll apply the existing academic research to three different case studies, with the intent of showing just how complex and powerful religion can be when it comes to racial formation. Peyton will introduce us to the theory behind our discussion, and later apply it to the experiences of Arab and Muslim Americans. Jordan will be looking at how white Christian nationalism is weaponized to create exclusionary policies, and I'll be looking at how U.S. Jews, as a religious minority, have been repeatedly re-racialized to suit the needs of the powerful. There will also be a few sections of unscripted discussion, where we will offer our own insights into the phenomenon of religion as a racializing factor. One theory that we will be referencing quite a bit throughout this podcast is Omi and Manant's theory of racial formation. Socio-historical processes regarding race and racial relations were, and continue to be, foundational to the United States. However, as the authors put it, race as a concept is still poorly understood and inadequately explained. That is where projects and classes like this one come in. By taking the time to further understand race, racial relations, and other issues in the United States, we can share that knowledge with others. One specific term that Omi and Winnot expand on and we will use throughout this podcast is racialization. In their terms, racialization is an extension of racial meaning to a previously racially unclassified relationship, social practice, or group. Individuals and groups can be racialized due to a variety of factors, including religion, which is what we will focus on today. Similarly, some scholars prefer racialization as an understanding of race or in lieu of the concept of race altogether because it cannot be understood as static unlike traditional racial categories. Rather, as Bianca Gonzalez-Sobrino and Devin Ghost state in their article, racialization involves change and ongoing practices that attach racial meanings to people. It is thus born out of social dominance and power. This is a pattern that we'll see across all three examples of religious racialization we discussed today, starting with Jordan's analysis of white Christian nationalism. Now that Peyton has introduced racialization and racial formation as our main frameworks for how race and religion intersect, we'll be turning to a religious and political phenomenon known as white Christian nationalism. In recent years, we've seen religious extremism displayed by far-right policies and rhetoric in the form of white Christian nationalism, which has become a driving force for many political motivations in the United States. Through these political motivations, racialized Christianity has been able to promote white supremacy and essentially deem people of color as outsiders through religious ideology. To first define the term white Christian nationalism, I look to Philip S. Gorski's and Samuel L. Perry's novel, The Flag and the Cross, in which they describe white Christian nationalism as a belief in a hierarchy with white Christian men at the top. And in order to maintain this hierarchy, white Christian men are both allowed and expected to use righteous violence to protect and preserve freedom and order. White Christian nationalism maintains the narrative that the U.S. was founded upon and dedicated to holding and spreading Protestant Christian values, believing in both a Christian heritage and future. Within this understanding, a growing presence of non-Christians and people of color would be a threat to what white Christian nationalists view as their own country. While white Christian nationalism dates back to the very founding of the U.S., it's known to gain momentum at different periods when white Christians feel threatened to outside forces, amplified by war, heightened immigration, or periods of economic instability. 
As all of these factors have been present in recent years, there has been a rise in white Christian nationalist rhetoric, mainly within the religious right, as well as an increase in targeting people of color through both harmful policy and ideology. The history of white Christian nationalism and the way it's embedded in the very founding of the U.S. tells the story of the beginning of racial formation in itself. Without the ability to racialize Christianity throughout the history of the U.S., the religious doctrine would not be so inextricably linked with white supremacy and violence. Christianity in the U.S. has largely been adopted as the white man's religion and therefore continues to racialize non-Christians as non-whites and vice versa. We see this time and time again etched into the very heart of white Christian nationalism, wherein, as Gorski and Perry say, there exists a racialized combination of libertarian freedom for whites and also authoritarian control over non-whites. As long as there is a perceived threat to the faux heritage and future of a rightfully white U.S. in the form of the presence of communities of color, white Christianity will remain a racialized weapon that will harm these communities. One example of a policy influenced and supported by white Christian nationalism is the overturn of the 1973 Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade. We saw that the decision was vastly celebrated by the religious right, but it's also important to note that this decision, made with specific Christian doctrine in mind, will directly harm black women and women of color. It is an overly common stance among white Christians, especially white evangelicals, that the constitutional right to an abortion is unbiblical. The lack of a distinct separation between religion and political action is shown in that many conservative leaders quote Bible verses and promote their Christian ideals when debating the legality of abortion. However, the fact of the matter is that women of color are disproportionately affected by a lack of access to safe abortions. Black women in the U.S. are almost four times more likely to have an abortion than white women and have a maternal death rate that is three times higher than white women. Thus, stripping away access to safe abortions puts the lives of black women in danger. In this way, the overturn of Roe v. Wade is a perfect example of how religion intersects with race. Here we have a hot-button issue Christians have completely adopted as the deciding factor in their political motivations. It's important to note that the overturn of Roe v. Wade also furthers white Christian nationalism in the sense that it both prioritizes Christian values and also outright denies the religious freedoms of religions that view abortion as a basic right, such as Judaism and Islam. In adhering to Christian doctrine, other religions in the U.S. are cast aside, which includes many people of color. This is just one of many examples of how white Christian nationalism targets and does harm to people of color, especially through political action and public policy. This ideology should also be blamed for some instances of more direct and interpersonal harm done to people of color. For example, on March 16, 2021, a man named Robert Aaron Long murdered six Asian women at a spa in Atlanta, Georgia, claiming his violence was an attempt to eliminate sexual temptation. The killings came at a time when violence against the Asian American community was on the rise shortly after the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Asian immigrants bore the brunt of much of the targeted xenophobic sentiment that white Christian nationalism spread throughout the pandemic. One of perhaps the easiest examples of the use of white Christian nationalism in recent years is former President Donald Trump's garnering of the religious right through his rhetoric. It would be too simplistic to imagine that Trump is alone in creating and furthering the rise of white Christian nationalism today, and saying so would be putting a band-aid over a gaping wound. His presidency is a symptom of the rise in white Christian nationalism that we see today, and it's only a part of the racial project that the Christian right has been doing for decades. 
Even so, I think it would be helpful to look at the language Trump used during his presidential campaign to further understand how white Christian nationalism functions. In 2016, the Trump campaign ran on xenophobic and racist rhetoric that called to those white Christians who felt threatened by the idea of not being a majority in the US anymore. Anti-black, anti-immigrant, and Islamophobic views were woven into Trump's campaign speeches specifically to target these white Christian voters. He stroked the white Christian nationalist fires in these communities by calling for the apparent need to protect Christianity in the U.S. For example, this clip from former President Trump's campaign speech at Liberty University shows just how blatantly identity politics was and still is used to appeal to white evangelical voters. But we are going to protect Christianity. And if you look what's going on throughout the world, you look at Syria, where they're, if you're Christian, they're chopping off heads. You look at the different places and Christianity, it's under siege. I'm a Protestant. I'm very proud of it. Presbyterian to be exact. But I'm very proud of it. Very, very proud of it. And we've got to protect because bad things are happening. Very bad things are happening. And we don't, I don't know what it is, we don't band together, maybe other religions, frankly, they're banding together and they're using it. In this clip, we see how his rhetoric and language were able to appeal to white evangelicals by promising to protect Christianity while also claiming that Christianity was under attack. In this way, appealing to white Christian nationalist rhetoric worked so well that reportedly 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in 2016, according to Pew Research and AP VoteCast. These cases go to show that white Christian nationalism has a profound impact on people of color, whether it's wielded by people in positions of political power or by susceptible people who fear losing their place in the hegemony. As a response to this fear, we see how racialization of people of color as an active threat to the white Christian hegemony through the lens of Christianity has been majorly effective as a mass phenomenon and it continues to execute social and political dominance over people of color. Since we're talking about racial formations and racialization, I think white Christian nationalism is like an extremely important lens to do that specifically in the United States, because obviously it's been a mass phenomenon that continues to execute social and political dominance over people of color. And as we see from this article that we're drawing from, from Philip Gorski, he talks about the January 6th Capitol insurrection and really kind of delves into how white Christian nationalism was founded, the history of it, how the United States was kind of built on top of this political vision that America belongs to white men specifically, and it's built on this kind of religious ideology. Yeah, I just, I thought it was so, obviously, like, it was so blatant that it's this sense of, ties a lot to the, the colonialism inherent in a lot of Christian, like, mission work in that it's like, oh, we have to save these, these wayward people. And in this case, obviously, it was a little bit more violent or a little bit more intended to, like, destroy people. But it was also the sense of, like, we have to save our country that has fallen into wayward hands. But also combined with then, like, the we have to destroy these people who we think are Satan worshippers and idol worshippers. And we see them as the literal devil. Mm -hmm. So, we're, you know, we were raised to be Christian. We think Christians should destroy the devil, so we're going to destroy these people. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think the other thing that really stands out for me is like, of course, this is a discussion about religion and how that gets racialized in the United States and how it does relate to power and supremacy. But when you look at this group of people, especially, there's not much that really goes back to like traditional Christianity and not much that you can like 
find in the Bible and find examples of, you know, this is what those people in the Bible were saying. So I think it's really interesting the way they've, like Lane said, pretty blatantly taken a much more mainstream religion and source and, you know, text and everything and kind of made it into this narrative of we are better than these other people. This is why. And we kind of have the right to attack the country and the capital and kind of like come for democracy in that way. I think it's a really, the leaps that they've made is really interesting. Yeah, it's crazy because it's almost like completely socially fabricated. Like it goes back to that idea of everyone else is a threat to me being the majority. And then also just thinking about like even congressional representatives who supported the Capitol insurrection like so blatantly. This is is largely considered domestic terrorism and we have people that are in positions of political power that are supporting it and kind of enforcing this ideology, which is insane. Right. And it's still, to your point about them still being the majority, it is this weird moment where they are pretending to be othered in a way that they do to other religious minorities, but they're taking on that mantle in order to try and legitimize their their movement, even though they themselves are not in any way othered or all of their needs and and beliefs and everything are catered to constantly, but they they still have this feeling of, we don't have complete control, therefore we need to to take it. And I think that that is a dynamic that is reproduced in not just within a country, but also when you see colonialism abroad of largely the global south that is oftentimes done under the pretext of advancing Christianity. Mm -hmm. It kind of goes back to the idea of the Christian crusades, uh, universal faith, um, and any, any contradiction to Christianity is a perceived threat and it almost allows this righteous violence. Not only do non-white people experience a special type of racialization within Christian spaces, but white or white-passing non-Christians can become racialized by not conforming to the religious hegemony. To understand this phenomenon, we need to understand the concept of conditional whiteness. Conditional whiteness is, much like it sounds, whiteness that can be given to or taken away from a group based on a variety of factors. These factors can include the social behavior or perceived social behavior of the group, economic upturn or downturn, or the simple whims of the ruling class. Sometimes this conditional whiteness can develop into a more permanent whiteness, as happened with Irish and German immigrants in the US, but this is not always the case. I'm going to be looking at how U.S. Jews came to hold conditional whiteness and how that has shaped perceptions of Jewishness from both Jews and non-Jews. First off, I need to clarify a few things. Number one, Judaism is best described as an ethno-religion whose religious component is based not on faith, as Christianity's is, but on observance. So while many U.S. Jews may still use the terms secular or religious to describe themselves, there really is no way to be Jewish that is completely divorced from the Torah short of converting out of the community. Therefore, I'll be using the language of more observant of these commandments versus less observant when discussing spirituality in the Jewish community. Number two, discussions surrounding Jews and whiteness ignore the many U.S. Jews who will never be read as even conditionally white. Comedian Eric Andre, for instance, is both black and Jewish, but when he got profiled by security at Atlanta International Airport in 2021, and again at John F. Kennedy Airport in 2022, it was decidedly an act of anti-black racism and not anti-Semitism. But the fact remains that most Americans see all Jews as, at the very least, off-white. The word Jewish usually conjures up celebrities like Jerry Seinfeld or Sarah Silverman, or maybe an Orthodox man with the side locks and a black hat, but still with light skin. 
This popular association between Jewishness and whiteness, as explained by the sociologist Riv Allen Perel, began to crystallize in the wake of World War II. Before the war, the racialized anti-Semitism spouted by people like Henry Ford and Father Coughlin labeled Jews as anti-American, anti-white invaders, who had caused the Great Depression to bring white American Christendom low. Despite the immediate European heritage of most American Jews, this rhetoric redefined Jewishness as a racialized category that could not be overcome even by white skin. After the war, however, the contribution of Jewish GIs and the horror of the Holocaust led to explicit anti-Semitism becoming less acceptable in public discourse. The idea of a Jewish race also lost its utility in the era of post-war prosperity. American Jews could now access whiteness through economic success. Judaism began to be considered an equal third pillar of American spirituality alongside Protestantism and Catholicism, which made Jewish religious observance slightly more acceptable. Anti-Semitism, meanwhile, became more institutional than scientific or social. The House and American Activities Committee investigations, for instance, didn't explicitly target Jews, but one of the reasons they might investigate someone was for opposing the Nazis too early, which of course meant many of Hugh victims were Jews who opposed the Nazis on ideological grounds. The American Jewish self-identification as white also began at this time. American Jews had been caught up in the white flight to the suburbs where, while not always welcomed with open arms, they did not face the explicit exclusion from housing communities that black Americans suffered. Jewish Americans also overwhelmingly supported the civil rights movement. And while they often saw themselves as white allies to the movement, they also recognized that their own connection to whiteness was so tenuous that if the movement failed, they could be back on the chopping block. Despite these developments, however, Jews still exist in the socio-political middle as activist and sociological PhD candidate Benjamin Case puts it. Aurora Levens Morales, a Latina Jewish poet, describes it even further. The whole point of anti-Semitism has been to create a vulnerable buffer group that can be bribed with some privileges into managing the exploitation of others, and then, when social pressure builds, be blamed and scapegoated, distracting those at the bottom from the crimes of those at the top. Sometimes, Jews are a non-white, shadowy cabal who are conspiring to make the white race disappear via interracial marriage and immigration. At other times, Jews are rich white colonizers who are the source of racist oppression. These conflicting perceptions simply serve to make Jews a perpetual outgroup, who can be painted with whatever brush serves the interests of Christian hegemony and or political expediency. Anti-Semitism's real and dangerous existence can be dismissed by non-Jews on the grounds that Jews have done well in America, while other forms of racism that exist within the white Jewish community can be dismissed by pointing to the historical oppression that Jews have faced. Under either view, Jews are treated like a monolith and a threat. Both frameworks relegate Jews to the bottom of a hierarchy by ascribing to them whatever racial identity is most useful. So we've talked a lot about how Jews have been treated as white or not white, depending on what's politically expedient. But we also have to recognize that anti-Semitism can sometimes be a bellwether or certainly tied into heavily other bigotries that are just simmering underneath the surface that are about to come out and that anti-Semitism is not just its own separate special little thing as I think it's often relegated to, but rather is deeply tied to other isms and bigotries and that oftentimes those bigotries are rooted in anti-Semitism. So a lot of this framework is pulled from Eric K. Ward's Skin in the Game from Political Research Association. He is a Southern Poverty Law Center researcher who does a lot of work on intersectional bigotry, especially from the white nationalist movement, and really about how anti-Semitism informs 
other forms of racism or misogyny or queerphobia and how you can't solve one without solving all the others. As you were talking, I was reminded about the intersectionality that he plays in this article. I thought it was really interesting that he said that it was his organizing against anti-Semitism as a black anti-racist that first pulled him into the Jewish community, not the other way around, which, like he said, is something that I think um, widely perceived as the other way around. And I just think that it's interesting that as we're talking about racialization and racial formation, like the intersectionality I thought was a really interesting piece to take from this article. I think something that has really stuck with me and in reading like your entire section, Lane, is I feel like I kind of, well, I grew up in Texas and I think that informs a lot of my understanding of everything we learn here at AU because it really could not be more different most of the time. But I think that we kind of learned, you know, I went to school in Texas when we did still learn about the Holocaust and we yeah. did still learn about everything that the Jewish people had gone through. And I think that it was kind of framed as racism still happens, sexism still happens, homophobia still happens, but like Jewish people, they went through the Holocaust and it's fine now. Mm -hmm. And I think reading things like this, thinking about that intersectionality that you mentioned, Jordan, that's so not the case and it kind of just brings me back. Yeah, and he also speaks to, this is going to sound so redundant, but anti-Semitism is in and of itself anti-Semitic. And what I mean by that is that we think of anti-Semitism as religious discrimination. And it can be that. It, there was a long period of history where it was that. But over the years, it has switched to a racial discrimination, which is weird in America because a lot of Jews in America are white and do hold white privilege, but at the same time are the targets of white supremacists, especially white Christian nationalists, as you were talking about, Jordan, who do not see them as white, but they, their ideas are in many ways so isolated that the rest of the population still sees them as white. So it is this, this odd tension. And you have now this weird new level of anti-Semitism where there's some good Jews and some bad Jews. And to, the, the, to many, I would say especially white Christian nationalists, the bad Jews are the non-religious ones, the, the secular ones, and they're the ones who control the banks. But the ones who are really religious and also support Israel, well, those are the good Jews. And of course, white Christian nationalists will co-opt that sort of thing to garner U.S. support for Israel, uh, when in reality, all of their, their basis for that is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about the end of the world. But they, it's, it's never, Jews can't win in many ways, and not that that's unique to us, but we always end up pigeonholed by people trying to find a group to blame oftentimes and a group to other and it's, it's convenient that there's a lot of historical groundwork for othering Jews so earlier Lane introduced the concept of conditional whiteness this is a really important topic to understand when considering racialization and Jewish people aren't the only ones who have held it or lost it. The events of September 11, 2001 greatly impacted the way that the racial order is structured in the United States. In his piece, Homeland Insecurities, Munir Ahmad argues that racial differences between African-Americans and whites have narrowed since September 11th, now that Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians have assumed the primary position of racial scorn. This is a significant shift in the racial positions of the United States, and African Americans became more American or closer to whiteness at the expense of another minority group. And while in this case it was African Americans becoming more American, it is often the other way around, with immigrant groups gaining whiteness at the expense of African Americans. As Toni Morrison argued, the subordination of African Americans is inherent to being and therefore becoming an American. 
However, immigrants do not only have to subordinate African Americans in order to position themselves as closer to whiteness in the American racial hierarchy. In fact, they are racialized as subordinate as well, just not as subordinate as African Americans. The process of immigration, naturalization, and gaining, gaining citizenship creates a framework of subordination for immigrants in which the only way for them to elevate themselves is by pushing other racial groups down. All of this is to say that immigrants both subordinate African Americans and are subordinated. Furthermore, they are racialized based on a variety of factors, including religion. Thus, it makes sense that post 9-11, all people who even looked Muslim lost a bit of their conditional whiteness, which fundamentally altered the existing racial hierarchy in the United States. Not only did the existing racial positions in the United States shift after 9-11, but as Ahmad states in his article, the citizenship status of all people of color was further degraded. Although racial groups do subordinate one another to an extent, it is true that for all non-white communities in the United States, there is a pattern of racialized infringements on citizenship and belonging. And post 9-11, Arabs and South Asians were no exception. When discussing these instances of racial profiling, it is important to understand that racial profiling is, in fact, a form of violence. Whether physical or not, it is harmful to those being profiled, and it stems from the biases of the perpetrator. A relatively well-known example that paints a picture of how common racial profiling is in our society is the derisive term driving while black, a play on driving while intoxicated. The phrase describes the all-too-common practice of police officers pulling drivers over based solely on the color of their skin. This clearly constitutes a racialized infringement on the citizenship and belonging of African-American citizens and even infringes on their Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable search and seizures. Post 9-11, Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians began to experience racial profiling in another form, which Craig Considine calls flying while brown. As Ahmad states in his article, Arab and Muslim-looking passengers began to face racial profiling in airports and, in some extreme cases, even got voted off of airplanes. In those cases, passengers who appeared Muslim not only faced racial profiling, but the tyranny of the majority. Occurrences like this make it clear that after September 11th, a narrative was created that suggested that Americans were under attack by potential terrorists and that the only way for Americans to fight back was by attacking these potential terrorists, those who look Muslim, right back. This narrative, once it was created, was perpetuated by the media, who bought into the sensationalized idea that all people who looked Muslim were dangerous and a threat to freedom in America. In reality, the media was overzealous with this rhetoric and ultimately made people into victims of post-9-11 hysteria. They clearly racialized Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians based on their religion and forced a connection that is still alive today between the Islamic faith and terrorism. For example, when being racialized as terrorists or potential terrorists, as Arabs and South Asians often are in the news, the media often identify Muslims by their religion. This may seem normal since it is so common for South Asians in the media, but consider a story about anti-abortion activists, as Jordan discussed earlier, that mentions Christian violence. It doesn't seem so normal then, does it? And while these media portrayals may come across to casual viewers as severe or alarmist, it can still be difficult to see why they're so dangerous. But in reality, they are, especially since it's a phenomenon seen on such a large scale across media. Take, for example, Robert Morlino's case study of p a Massachusetts-based software company that was the subject of suspected ties to Al-Qaeda in 2002. Ultimately, this wasn't true, but it did have real-world implications. The company lost millions of dollars in contracts. The media sensationalized the story in order to gain viewers and then abandoned it when it became clear that P-Tech wasn't working with terrorists after all. 
but the short time that the story was in the news had repercussions. The media, by capitalizing on post-9-11 hysteria, had made the company and its employees victims. In addition, the general attitude that the American public holds towards Arabs and Arab Americans is dangerous and, as Morlino argues, the role of the news media in fostering the attitudes that led to those crimes cannot be ignored. Here, the crimes that he is referring to are the burning of Arab American business and vandalization of homes following the Oklahoma City bombing, which was carried out by a white domestic terrorist. Clearly, when South Asians and Arabs and Muslims are systematically racialized as terrorists in news media as a result of their religion, it can shape public perception of who is a terrorist. Take, for example, cartoonist Tom Tomorrow's political strip, This Modern World. The first panel is discussing terrorists who were arrested in Spokane, Washington, and the man in the second panel responds with, that's terrible. Who were they? Iraqis, Al-Qaeda, Hamas? This modern world's contrarian penguin Sparky answers, um, white supremacists, actually. The man replies, oh, I thought you said they were terrorists. Like Jordan discussed earlier in regards to government and politics, those in power in the United States have utilized the media as a tool for racialization. In this case, a specific narrative has been shaped about who is a terrorist and what a terrorist can look like. Here we've discussed a lot about how South Asians and Arabs and Muslims were portrayed in the news media after 9-11 and the narrative that that created about them and about them as terrorists and about what a terrorist can or cannot look like. But one really interesting article that I also read that kind of has a very different approach is Evelyn Asaltani's article, which discussed the scripted television portrayal of those same groups after 9-11 and how they had really sympathetic views of those groups and discussed their experience of hate crimes and their experience with how people looked at them differently after 9-11. And the author goes with this idea that by portraying the U.S. as a post-racial society, by portraying us as sympathetic towards these people, then we can justify the wars that are happening and the hate crimes that are happening. And it's this really interesting kind of juxtaposition of understanding that what we're doing and saying is wrong. So I was wondering what you guys thought about that, if you've seen it with other groups. As you were talking, I was kind of reminded of just examples that I've seen in media and I mean the news but also just generally of kind of this feigned empathy towards especially a Muslim woman while also kind of maintaining this imperialistic view of even just the Middle East as a whole especially within Christian spaces since we were talking about that in the beginning. Um, I used to go to school in Florida in a very conservative white school and, you know, they would show us media that was we need to free the Muslim women from their oppression because they have to wear hijabs and they have to be married to these men that are always portrayed as violent and just really reinforcing those stereotypes. So I think that that empathy is definitely used to further that. There was a, a congresswoman who wore like a burqa on the floor of the Senate and was like, this is what Muslim women have to go through. Yeah. And it's like, even if that was true, which like you're completely removing any sort of context or any of the agency of Muslim women, which convenient for a white woman to re remove agency from brown women. But you like not only are you doing that, even if it was true, even if it was a terrible thing, that's no justification for the U.S. imperialism in the Middle East, the punishing of countries like Iraq upon our invasion. And I also think that 
you know, before we were recording, we were talking about the Southeast Asian imperialism that the U.S. has engaged in for forever as a precursor to the anti-Asian hate crimes that we saw at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. There's a little bit of mitigating circumstances there, but it's not, they're not unrelated. So the U.S. imperialism in the Middle East directly gave us events like 9-11. If you don't want those things to happen, if you don't want things like the morality police in Iran, then maybe you shouldn't interfere in other countries' governments just because you want their oil. To think that we can just make whatever mess we want and then go back in and clean it up however we want is ridiculous and pompous and factually untrue and, of course, incredibly imperialist and based in white American Christian nationalism. So, Especially um, with the author, what she says about portraying the U.S. as benevolent and as racial and the example that all other countries should follow and portraying, Jordan, like you were saying, these women as less than when that happens in our society as well. That happens to women who aren't racialized for other reasons as well. Generally speaking, this is just a really another example of the United States using racialization, the inverse of it, to make themselves look good as opposed to another group look bad. And I thought that was really interesting. In light of all the racial projects and racialization processes that we have covered today, it's clear to see that race and religion are extremely intertwined in our society. Through our research and discussion, we affirm that it is imperative to analyze the ties between religious ideology and racial projects, whether that comes in the form of racializing religious groups or religiously driven policies that directly harm people of color or the reinforcement of stereotypes to promote adherence to an oppressive power structure. We hope that this important conversation and all of the complexities and frameworks that it contains will continue to be enriched, and we hope you enjoyed our podcast. Thank you.